Welcome to Season 2 of the Intersections on the Spectrum podcast. The Intersections on the Spectrum podcast is the brainchild of Doug Bletcher and Kelly Braun Johnson, created to discuss intersectional issues within the autistic community and to give visibility to commonly marginalized, repressed, underrepresented, or erased identities and issues. We aim to introduce you to the people and stories you didn't know about but needed to hear, and hope that by seeing yourself represented in the community allows you to feel seen. Today's guest is Nick Walker, who is a queer, transgender, flamingly autistic writer and educator, best known for her foundational work on the neurodiversity paradigm and neuroqueer theory. She is a professor of psychology at California's Institute of Integral Studies and author of the book, Neuroqueer Heresies. She also teaches Aikido and co-writes the urban fantasy webcomic, Weird Luck. Dr. Walker, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. Wanted to uh, start off, and you know, I mentioned it a little bit in the introduction, but what would you say are the identities that you most are connected to? Oh, well, let's see. Yeah, as, as noted in the intro, I'm queer, and that I think is kind of first and foremost for me, if I think about identity, is just that sort of general queerness. I'm a trans woman who has not yet medically transitioned, and I still don't know how far I'm going to go with that. That's, in fact, sort of a part of my relationship with queerness is just being willing to mess around with gender stereotypes and you know, as long as I, as long as I feel femme, not really care too much about what the outside looks like. I'm autistic, proudly, flamingly autistic. So yeah, those are those are sort of central ones, and then in different contexts, different aspects of my sense of identity come out. I regard identity as uh, very fluid and context dependent. And so, for instance, I'm ethnically Jewish, and that's something I can go long periods of time without really thinking about, but sometimes it really comes to the forefront if I encounter anti-Semitism or just uh, sometimes I'll have an encounter with white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture and be really struck by the contrast culturally, and it really sort of makes reminds me of of that aspect of my identity, you know, yeah, wow, that's a whole different cultural experience from the, the white experience. So a lot of different aspects, you know, of my identity, you know, in academia as a professor, my identity in, in Aikido as a, a sensei, as an, an Aikido teacher, all of these sort of come up contextually, the queerness and my willingness to, to queer identity and treat it as fluid and grounds for creativity is uh, one that remains pretty universal. So I, I relate to that a lot um, and to the point where I think there's something about perhaps with autistic people not really giving a crap what other people think or what the gender should be because we don't, you know, I think maybe I missed some messages growing up <laughs> where, you know, things were not very stereotypical for me. Despite the fact that, you know, my mom did not want to buy me Transformers, even though I wanted I wanted Transformers and I wanted the big Tonka trucks and things like that. And meanwhile, my best friend, who's gay, 
was coming to my house to play with my Barbies because his mom wouldn't <laughs> let him have Barbies. So it's a whole big thing. Anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other, <laughs> probably a whole other interesting discussion. But um, yeah, so let's let's go to your book. Uh, so you came out with a book recently called Neuroqueer Heresies, which is a collection of a decade's worth of your writings on neurodiversity, autism, and neuroqueering. Where do you see the neurodiversity paradigm being a decade later? Mm, interesting question. Well, uh, let's. I, I'll give some background here for readers who are unfamiliar, but this term neurodiversity has been around uh, since the 90s, uh, referring to the diversity among human minds. And there is also this neurodiversity movement that arose originally from out of the autistic rights activist community and has sort of spread among neurodivergent people. This this neurodiversity movement that's essentially, you know, a, a civil rights or social justice movement largely. But there was some confusion I saw. I was involved in uh, the conversation sort of in which the neurodiversity movement took shape. You know, I've been involved in autistic community and culture since 2003. And so I got to be involved in some of those those early conversations on the concept of neurodiversity and its implications. And I saw that there were two different things that neurodiversity was being used to refer to. It was the diversity of minds, but it was also being used to refer to a particular attitude towards neurodiversity. And I decided for the sake of clarity, I would start calling that the neurodiversity paradigm. So my thesis, my uh, sort of fundamental idea there was that neurodiversity is a, a basic biological fact. You know, we just, our minds are different, our brains and nervous systems are different, we're all different from each other, but the dominant societal attitude toward neuro neurodiversity is governed by what I took to calling a pathology paradigm, and the pathology paradigm is this, you know, a paradigm is basically a set of assumptions from which theory and practice are built. It's a set of basic assumptions about reality. And so the basic assumptions of the pathology paradigm are that there's one right or normal way for a human mind to function, one right way to be, and sort of this, this standard of neuronormativity that if you di uh, diverge from neuronormativity, if you diverge from the, whatever the dominant cultural standards are in any really significant, noticeable way, you are frequently pathologized. There is this idea that there's something wrong with you, and thus autistic people, for instance, get stigmatized and labeled as having a disorder. So that's the pathology paradigm. And so the neurodiversity paradigm I proposed, the basic you know, fundamental idea behind the neurodiversity paradigm is that no, there is in fact uh, no right or healthy way, no one right way for a human body mind to be, no one right way for a mind to function and norm, you know, so-called normal is not the same as healthy or natural. It's just whatever the dominant culture has decided is normal at the time. And if we, if we recognize that as a construction, we can say, oh, this, this is a diversity issue. Humanity is a neurodiverse species, just like it's an ethnically diverse species and a gender diverse species. And 
pathologizing of certain styles of mind, styles of cognitive functioning, is really just the same as saying certain ethnic groups are inferior or certain genders are inferior, inferior or invalid. So the neurodiversity paradigm is essentially what you get when you throw out the pathology paradigm. Uh, I started publishing writing about that more publicly, you know, again, about a decade ago after talking about it in online autistic spaces for many years, for several years before that. And yeah, a decade later, I think the idea is catching on. I see people really building on that in a good way. I mean, neurodiversity has become a, a major buzzword. It's become a much more widely known word, but a lot, to a large extent, it has become another corporate and academic buzzword where people don't get the meaning. And so what I see a lot of is uh, a shift to the language where people start using the word neurodiversity, but they haven't really made the shift to the neurodiversity paradigm. I see very frequently people are still thinking in a way that's based in the pathology paradigm. So, uh, for, for instance, I'll see people talk about neurodiversity, and this is often said in uh, corporate settings, you know, uh, or, or in academic work by non-autistic people. I'll see people talk about uh, neurodiversity, but then they'll talk about, you know, autism and ADHD and dyslexia and other forms of neurodivergence as conditions, for instance, which is a medical term, it's a pathology paradigm term, say, you know, and it's once again, that's that same pathology paradigm model of you're, you're normal or you have a condition, that's still a pathology paradigm, even if you use the word neurodiversity in there. So I think that there's a lot of that, but there's also a lot of people who are really being changed by the neurodiversity paradigm and changing, you know, it's, it's shaping more and more academic work and professional practice. I'm seeing more people in therapy-related professions, for instance, really try to apply the neurodiversity paradigm to their practice. And it's a small start, but it's a, it's a good one. So I'm very happy with that and the way that the paradigm is being built on. Yeah, I've seen that, but I've also seen people just using it wrong in general. Oh, yes. Um, like, there was a newspaper headline just yesterday that I read that had it was a store that's been opened by, say, they said neurodiverse people. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, it's you know, like, you meant neurodivergent, mm-hmm. you know? Anyway, but yeah, it, it, it's a work in progress. I, I am like, I am concerned, like you said, you know, especially in with businesses as using it like as a, as a buzzword to attract people and then not actually having any substance behind it, not having necessarily, you know, accommodations behind it, just being like, oh, yes, we're interested in these neurodiverse people um, <laughs> and, and, you know, not quite getting it. Right. And that's where I hope the book makes a difference there, because my hope is, you know, because it does spell out a vocabulary and definitions very clearly in the early sections of the book, because I think that's important for the sake of clarity. I think it's important to have that sense of if we shift, making the shift in the language and really internalizing it and understanding the language does require a certain shift in consciousness and a certain mindfulness, which is necessary for an internal paradigm shift. So I think the language makes a difference in that sense. And I'm not into 
you know, so often on, you know, on social media these days, you see people just get like dogpiled for, for using a term wrong, you know, being clueless and being new to an idea. I don't like that. I think I, I like to see people in public discourse on social media and such be kinder to each other and more forgiving. So when I propose, you know, when I come forward and say, these are the definitions, you know, this is a set of definitions that works. And I, in these cases, they're either their definitions of word terms that I came up with, like neurodiversity paradigm or neurominority, or they're when it's terms that other people came up with uh, neurodiversity or neurodivergent, I actually checked with the people who coined the terms and asked them, does this ac- accurately represent what you were thinking? So try to come up with something definitive to encourage people to really think deeply about the language and change their thinking rather than just to sort of be a stickler about language so you can feel superior to other people on social media. <laughs> so, and I, but yeah, I do note that in, in the, uh, in the book, in fact, I say that people saying neurodiverse when they mean neurodivergent is like a, a huge red flag that these people haven't really understood the neurodiversity paradigm. And, you know, kind of annoys me, of course, uh, you know, I've been friends with uh, for years with Cassiana Asasamasu, who coined the term neurodivergent. And it's such a, a useful word. And she really meant the word to be uh, so broadly inclusive. And I love that about it and I think that uh, so I talk a lot about that in there I really just want to see people do justice to that word and, and learn it and also give credit for that uh, to the person who coined it you know we we could take this conversation so many ways based on all those the great things that you, you've said but I, I wanted to go back to something um, you, you you were talking about earlier because I hadn't I hadn't heard anyone describe their autistic identity in the way that you have, where you talked about being flamingly autistic. Can you maybe talk a little bit about why you decide to um, use that language when talking about your autistic identity? Yeah, so that ties in with this whole idea of neuroqueering and the idea that, you know, this term neuroqueer, which I, I coined back in 2008 and has been growing recent years has really sort of gained some traction. This term neuroqueer stems from a couple of ideas here. And one is this basic idea of, of queer theory. You know, and I'm, I'm a big fan of queer theory and kind of a queer theory scholar. And in a sense, the concept of neuroqueering is an extension of queer theory to encompass neurodiversity. How do we how do we extend this discourse of queer theory so that neurodiversity is included within that discourse? And so, you know, the central idea in queer theory is uh, this idea that uh, gender is a socially constructed and a socially learned performance. We learn to perform our gender, and people from throughout their lives from the earliest childhood are shaped on, you know, personal and systemic levels. Society really tries to ingrain uh, heteronormativity, these particular normative performance of binary heterosexual gender roles. You get assigned male or assigned female, and it just pervasively on every level 
uh, society and culture groom people to perform these normative gender roles. And so queering and queer theory, you know, is essentially to one queers heteronormativity, one messes with heteronormativity, defies it, challenges it, subverts it, violates its norms. So to deviate from heteronormativity is to to queer it and to be queer is really to be engaged in the action of queering heteronormative gender and sexual performance and so i neuroqueer this term neuroqueer started with the idea that the same applies to neuronormativity that neurotypicality this sense of like what it means to be normal is also culturally constructed. There's no actual normal brain. So that's also a social construct that people learn to perform. People learn to perform certain ways of being neurocognitively normal. And that performance can also be queered. And so, you know, a person can be born gay or leaning towards gay, you know, born with natural proclivities in that direction. But some people are, and they still get indoctrinated into heteronormativity and never really come out of the closet and spend their their lives living a, a heteronormative life that isn't really a good fit for them, you know, as opposed to the people who are like, oh, no way, you know, I, I'm going to embrace this gay side and really stop trying to be heteronormative and, you know, and then they're okay, I'm, I'm queer here, you know, and it's, uh, or again, people get assigned a particular gender role and there's people who stick with that and sometimes it's a good fit and sometimes it's a miserable fit and then there's people who are like, that doesn't fit me. I'm something else, you know, I'm a different gender from the one assigned to me or not now, not, can't really be nailed down to a particular gender role or something. And so, you know, there's this queering of it and I think the same thing we all get trained, you know, all us neurodivergent people get trained to act normal. And there's whole, you know, multi-billion dollar industries like the ABA, you know, so-called behavioral therapy industry that's about, you know, normalize autistic children, get them to, you know, do this normative performance, even at the expense of their own well-being. So... Neuronormativity can also be queered. And then the other piece of neuroqueering is that heteronormativity and neuronormativity are actually entwined with each other. So if you queer one enough, you're also queering the other. If you are, in fact, really openly autistic and moving and embodying like an autistic person, you're also not performing a normal heteronormative gender role either. You've also started to queer your gender just by virtue of being openly autistic. So yeah, so when I describe myself as flamingly autistic, I it's a way of saying, you know, I'm I'm neuroqueer. I I queer neuronormativity. I don't do neuronormative performance at all. I'm really just let myself follow the flow of how my body mind actually works and you know, my embodied performance of self is very openly autistic and doesn't really make much in the way of concession to neuronormativity these days. And uh, and how can people go about uh, purchasing your book, Neuroqueer mm. Heresies? 
Well, I think that's an interesting question because because it points to how far we have come with the development of things like the neurodiversity paradigm. Because maybe 15 years ago, if you asked, you know, how can you purchase a book like this? There'd be some little, you know, sort of like fringe place, you know, it'd be like some independent little, you know, self-published thing and it'd be kind of just hard to come by. But that's not the case. I mean, it's published by, you know, Autonomous Press, which is a, a small press, but it's available anywhere where you can get books. So, you know, it's just, you know, you can buy it on Amazon or bookshop.org or, you know, look for it locally. You know, there's this lovely website, Indie Bounds, where you can look up a book. And it'll, it'll give you a list of the local bookstores that might carry it. It's in the Ingram distribution catalog, which is where almost every bookstore orders their stock from these days. So you can walk into any bookstore and be like, hey, can you order this book for me? And they can just look it up in their system. So yeah, it's uh, it's as available as any other book, which is, I think, huge progress from an era where this stuff used to be, you know, only available as self-published pamphlets or something. Nice. So I, I just want to go back a little bit to, you know, when you're talking about being flamingly autistic, you know, it just comes down to like owning it, right? Just owning mm-hmm. our way of being and being fully like authentic, but also just proud of it. Um, you know, like, I guess almost like eccentrically autistic or stereotypically autistic in some ways. But um, I really like that idea. Have you, I mean, have you used the term um, gender or autigender? Or are you familiar with that? Because it's like saying I've, it's like an autistic gender. I've heard the term. I use the term neuroqueer, as you know, which dates back to way before other, any other term I'm familiar with to refer to it. And of course, neuroqueering involves many different potential practices. And, you know, there's many different ways to neuroqueer. But, but I like that term because... It really is about, it ties into queer theory and the idea, the idea of gender as an embodied performance that's fluid and changeable. So I don't necessarily want to, you know, it's, I mean, my gender is not, like autistic is not my gender. My gender performance is influenced and shaped and queered by my being autistic. And my way of being autistic is shaped and queered by my gender experience of being a trans woman assigned male at birth and the long process of sort of building up this facade of masculinity and breaking it apart and and coming out as trans and, you know, these, the ongoing exploration of what it means to be femme and especially to be feminine, a body that doesn't look it. So all of these things inform and shape each other, but they are different, you know. It's not, it's not quite as simple as an identity label like autogender or, uh, you know, it, it's not quite so simple as a, an identity label that says... Um, my gender is shaped by being autistic. It's more the 
this term neuroqueer that referred that sort of references back to the verb neuroqueering and the fact that there's an ongoing interplay between gender and neurology and the fact that gender is not fixed and neurology and neurocognitive functioning aren't fixed either. Our brains are extremely plastic. And I started out with an autistic brain, but you know, my neurocognitive functioning is also influenced by a lot of practices, including gender practices. My my consciousness and what my brain could do and the way I thought has shifted dramatically just as I've purged the the masculine embodiment from my body and uh, allowed the more feminine styles of embodiment and relationality to emerge. And so I I think it's important to have a way of talking about it that that encompasses all of that complexity. And that's what I aim for with uh, NeuroQueer. Well, I think that that is a really great way of just basically saying the whole point of this podcast, we're talking about these intersecting identities and the, how these things influence each other and how they play off each other. So perfect, perfect. Um, <laughs> so um, going back we're, to other literature, art or academic writings, um, is there anything that you found especially impactful for those who would want to learn more about uh, neuroqueer experiences other than your book, of course? <laughs> Other than my book, what people need more than just my book. <laughs> yeah, I think there's an emerging field of of neuroqueer literature, though not all of it identifies itself as as such. Autonomous Press's Neuroqueer Books imprint does an annual anthology called the Spoon Knife Anthology, which is a multi-genre neuroqueer lit anthology of. Um, any fiction of any genre, short fiction of any genre, short literary memoir, poetry. We've got what volume five volumes out. Volume six is coming out in the spring, and then I'm actually currently accepting submissions for volume seven, which I'm the lead editor on. So that even just that series of spoon knife anthologies, there's some great stuff, and it's really pointing towards uh, you know. Uh, fiction, fiction that gets aspects of the neuroqueer across, and memoir that captures aspects of neuroqueer experience. Um, there's some lovely speculative fiction that I would consider neuroqueer coming out. Dora Raymaker's work, uh, Hoshi and the Red City Circuit. Uh, Dora Dora Raymaker's amazing uh, uh, sort of neuroqueer cyber noir detective thriller that's an amazing piece of work and she's uh dora's got uh, uh a really really big uh like epic speculative fiction novel uh in the same world as hoshi and the red city circuit uh called resonance coming out uh next year i know because i had the honor of being the editor on it <laughs> and so that sort of thing, I would I would consider Ada Hoffman's amazing speculative fiction work to be to be uh, neuroqueer. Uh, I don't know if Ada calls it that or not, but it, it certainly certainly strikes me as having that that vibe. And uh, you know, I see it in other things that really aren't that definitely are not explicitly identified as neuroqueer. But there's sort of things in the weird fiction genre that convey that vibe to me, Caitlin R. Kiernan's work, uh, for instance. And there's stuff that goes way back. Samuel Delaney's work from way the heck back, books like Babel 17 and Dahlgren, 
uh, really shaped me as a teenager and uh, led directly to my conception of neuroqueer, I think. I don't think I'd have the same way of thinking about this stuff if I hadn't read read Delaney in my impressionable teenage years. And other stuff that people might not, you know, might not be so obvious, but like, you know, Robert Atten Wilson's book, Prometheus Rising, on uh, the Eighth Circuit model of consciousness. It was a very, a book that seems very, uh, embarrassingly outdated now in a lot of ways, but just these these early writings by people like Tim Leary and Antro Ali and Robert Anton Wilson, uh, people whose fans tend to be you know more like psychedelic drug fans and such uh, than people who think you know about neurodiversity as such. But really, they're all works about neuroplasticity. They're all works about this idea of making intentional alterations to our consciousness. And so that really contributed a whole lot to my, my conception of uh, neuroqueer as well. Now, something that I think about pretty much every day is the importance of community for all of us. But I think so often for neuroqueer folks, um, there's not maybe social or cultural environments to be accepted, supported, and to be encouraged. Are there maybe some best practices you've seen or things that should be involved in these um, environments that could truly be helpful to the neuroqueer community? Yeah, I do. There's a lot of different approaches to it. There's just as there's no one right way to, uh, you know, for a mind to function and a body to function, and there's no one right way to neuroqueer. There's no one right sort of space there's a you know the the concept of neuroqueering i think points to a a vast horizon of untapped possibility in terms of what what's possible for spaces and a diversity of spaces in in that sense i think that uh to some extent there's a a little bit of barking up the wrong tree that goes on in some academic and social justice spaces and people thinking about how can we create a safe space for everyone, an accommodating space for everyone. And I think what happens is you end up with a bland space where no one can do anything interesting or creative because for any interesting or creative thing you do, you're going to trigger somebody. You're going to, you're going to, you know, violate somebody's sensory needs or cognitive needs or, or uh, trauma-related safety needs or something like that. So I think the important thing is actually a diversity of spaces where there is some sort of good space available for everyone, some good environment accessible to any given uh, person or group of people, but trying to make, take every space and make every space work for every single person who might come into that space, I think is an impossible task that ends up killing creativity because people become entirely focused on nothing but policing the space to try to keep it safe for everyone. And then it stops being safe for people like me who have a creative need for uh, spaces that are somewhat unsafe. So yeah, I would say there are many different ways to uh, to neuroqueer spaces and allow people doing different sorts of work to feel supported. I I have a chapter in the book called Guiding Principles for a Course on Autism in which I talk about 
creating a, a, a neuroqueer classroom space, essentially, creating a classroom space that is neurodivergent and neuroqueer friendly and what that means. And I think in general, one wants a, a space that allows acceptance of all sorts of different modes of embodied performance of queerness and neuroqueerness and so um you know a space where people can freely stim and move in you know not where people aren't expected to all be sitting in some like you know conventional you know corporate fashion everybody everybody's or academic fashion everybody stays in their seats and does this normative performance of what you know the dominant culture says it looks like to pay attention but people can rove and stim and move and look where they need to look and do what they need to do uh with their own bodies in order to be engaged in the space so i think that's definitely uh, a widely valuable thing and something that i try to create in the classroom that there's no requirement to perform to perform attention in a neurotypical way. That said, for me, I'm also, you know, I'm an Aikido teacher and uh, the environment of the Aikido Dojo has played an enormous role in my own work of self-liberation. And there, there's very strict rules about how to move and how, and how to conduct oneself. There's a very, very strict uh, norms in terms of how one does one's embodiment. And that actually worked really well for me. I started training in Aikido when I was 12. And that was, that was probably, that was the healthiest, safest environment I'd found. And the rules and structures were extremely valuable to me in that context. And actually, somehow the explicitness was valuable that uh, in school classrooms, for instance, as a kid, I was always in trouble for not performing attention and engagement in the way that, you know, the neuronormative way and the way that kids were supposed to do according to the rules of neurotypical performance. But in the Aikido Dojo, there were these very clearly spelled out, you sit exactly like this and you you say exactly this at this time, and this is when you bow. And it was so explicit in a way I had hungered for and created this very disciplined structure that freed me up to focus on, you know, the actual work of practice. Um, so I love stuff like that. I'm, I'm uh, on the one hand, I'm radically anti-authoritarian when it comes to you know, subverting normativity and such. And on the other hand, I'm very into consensual spaces of disciplined hierarchy, you know, in, in academia, in the martial arts world and such, in creatively, I'm very into these spaces, sometimes that have very clearly defined uh, roles and rules and authority structures, as long as people get to choose whether they come to those spaces or not. So you said, you said uh, there's a few interesting things that, um, that I'm like nodding uh, violently <laughs> with an agreement in a sense, uh, you know, I just want to go back a, a second there to, you know, talk about safe spaces for everyone. 
and you know I have to agree uh, I, I think it's it's impossible and so I I'm taking the words of somebody else another uh, another um, diversity and inclusion practitioner that I that I work with you know where she says I can't I can't promise you a safe space but we're gonna have a brave space mm-hmm. um, and so as long as you're open to having this dialogue um, you know it's, it's when people shut down and they're not willing to then try something different is when it's a problem but if you can have a brave space you can come in and you can be who you are and you can if, if there's something bothering you you can talk about it and another person can respect you know respect you and listen to you and and you can come to a solution so when you have that kind of solution mind I find that this idea mm-hmm. of safe space is like well the world's the walls are going to be put up around us and we're not going to do any work mm-hmm. to ever to ever get out of this or to ever you know so yeah that that you know I resonate with that but also have you been to Japan? question I know. <laughs> no, no I haven't it's funny because okay. of course I've been uh, very immersed throughout my life in uh, traditional you know Japanese martial arts culture but within the US so you know and I've trained under teachers who come from Japan and sort of you know learned the traditional Japanese etiquette around martial arts but you know the rest of Japanese culture I don't you know, I don't know anything else about besides what the average American knows. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't been there. So, Japan to me is is an autistic person's dream because, like you were <laughs> saying, the rules and what you're supposed to do, when and how and whatever, they're so explicit but so simple that you know, I've I've gone there twice now. I don't speak any Japanese. I went because my best friend's there. I, I didn't really even have interest in Japan necessarily, but I went best friend is there. And there's an immediate calm that almost comes over me because despite the fact that I don't speak Japanese, I know exactly what to expect. When I go to a store and I put my my purchases on the table there for them to ring up for me, uh, there's a process. You know, and and they they hand you back your card. You hand the card to them in a certain way. They hand it back to you in a certain way. Everybody says, "I am asked, yes," and then we leave, right? And it's super yes. super easy to follow. You know, they have like arrows on the road and on sidewalks and in the subway system to say, "Fast people walk on this side, slow people walk on this side, people going the other direction will walk on this side," and as long as everybody sticks to that, there is no problem. There is no confusion. It is, it is fantastic. All the rules are there for everybody. Um, and so I can go in and I don't feel like I'm out of place because I know I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I, I find it it's fantastic. So I, I find those rules, that structure, you know, and I've seen martial arts be very, very beneficial for many, many people, people that you wouldn't think would thrive under martial arts with those kind of constraints. Uh, and I know for me, my mom put me in ballet ballet is extremely rigid you know there's Mm -hmm. there's no flexibility allowed in ballet it has to be perfect and it has to be like this and and i thrived into that as well despite the fact that i hate conformity and i i'm not really big on authority either um but these kind of uh controlled situations where things are uh are very explicit and very clear uh, i feel that we can thrive under yes and that's been very much my experience in in you know with a life a life immersed in Aikido practice it's been, was very much my experience of the Aikido Dojo right from the start, and I've continued to really value that traditional uh, formal etiquette for that exact reason. I think it's very, I, I wrote about it in my doctoral dissertation, in fact, I refer to these things as uh, organic social accommodations, 
because they work as social accommodations for neurodivergent people and for people disabled in various ways. Um, they work as these wonderful artistic people, especially I think they work as these wonderful accommodations, and yet they're organically there. They weren't created as accommodations. They were created as as because it's what's necessary in order to do the practice well, and in order to create the right environment for the practice. And my experience is that autistic people generally, you know, will get that when they come into an Aikido dojo like mine, where there's a tradition, traditional etiquette forms practice. And a lot of non-autistic people don't get it so well. A lot of, you know, some of them love it. They're looking for that sort of thing, um, especially if they, they're coming to it early. But there's also people in the U.S. who they're used to this culture of bad manners of I don't like I don't want to have to re, you know I don't I shouldn't have to bow I shouldn't have to uh, you know I shouldn't have to remember this essentially they don't want to they don't want to do the actual work because the work of you know the work of Aikido is mindfulness it is a mindfulness practice and part of the formal etiquette is that that's where the mindfulness starts as you remember to bow at the right time and to to do the right thing. And that is a mindfulness practice. And, you know, people in the, in the name of being like anti-authoritarian or whatever, really just don't want to, they don't want to do the mindfulness practice. That's the foundation of the art. And I'm just, I'm very pro-mindfulness. I think that that's part of, part of the work that we need to do as a, a culture and as individuals, you know, again, so much of, that pervades so much of my work as an Aikido practitioner, as a Zen practitioner, but my work on neuroqueering and neurodiversity, when I'm talking about language, and I'm talking about really stopping to think about how to connect with people whose consciousness may work very different from one's own. All of these are essentially calls for mindfulness, for not going through life, just duplicating unconscious normative social programming but actually developing a mindfulness and intentionality about how one lives and interacts. And the fact that people can do that. I think mm-hmm. some people get scared because it's, it's very scary to do that, right? To come up it with is. their own way. Um, and when you don't see any examples of anybody else doing it either. Um, but yeah, almost permission. Permission to be yourself and to think the way that you want to. Nick, I wanted to talk a little bit about creativity. Um, you know, something... I, I feel like I am a creative person, but maybe not in a traditional sense. Like, I'm not going to draw a beautiful picture or anything like that. Uh, but I feel like my creativity occurs when I have structure. So I know you, you were talking a little bit about that relating to Aikido. Um, can you maybe talk, do you see that in other aspects of your life? I know you have a web webcomic, you're... You're an instructor, professor. Can you talk about maybe creativity um, within the concept of structure? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, creativity to me is about producing something new and original and authentic uh, in response to whatever, in response to a given circumstance or in response to life. 
And so in that sense, you know, writing and drawing and painting and making music and all of these things are creative acts. You know, if one is, if one is producing something that's original and authentic to the self and there's that, those are creative acts, but so is just living creatively. And I think this is part of where the whole, this is, you know, queering is inherently creative, I think. Treating our gender as a canvas for creativity rather than just accepting the gender role that we were assigned, saying, yeah, I want to play with it this way. I think identity in general is a canvas for creativity, so I don't tend to nail myself down to over-identifying with a particular identity. I treat it as fluid because I'm constantly creating it. I've been constantly engaged in a process of self-creation. And so I love identity as a canvas for creativity, and that can mean developing concepts like neuroqueer or just taking existing concepts, whether it's something like neuroqueerness or queerness, or whether it's something like one's ethnicity and seeing what's my personal spin on this. How do I personally live this in a way that's authentic to me rather than doing it in exactly the way my culture tells me I'm supposed to do it? In that, so in that sense, I'm into creativity and just self-embodiment as creativity, culture and life as creativity. And how do we make an authentic response for, for ourselves? Essentially, I mean, that's what the art of Aikido is about too, is how do we navigate interaction creatively? That Aikido takes us to one of the the most potentially uncreative forms of interaction, you know, direct conflict. And we're culturally trained into these, you know, I mean, biology trains us to these fight, flight, freeze responses. And then we're culturally trained to just do variations of those and to vie for dominance and to have certain, to have specific, certain specific set responses to certain kinds of relational stress and I you know it's like no this is this is an opportunity for creativity. Even someone physically attacking you is an opportunity to respond creatively in a way that's authentic to you and doesn't follow a script that you know we've been culturally taught things have to follow. So yeah, I believe I believe in creativity in that way and in finding that on a bodily level. There's a bodily releasing of habitual patterns that has to happen to let something new come through and the you know that that comes up whether again whether you're writing a story or creating playing or creating a piece of music or something or just living your life walking down the street interacting with someone in a relationship with someone having sex whatever it is it's like how do you allow the authentic, the stuff, the thing only you can bring, uh, how do you allow that to surface and not force it because that inevitably becomes inauthentic, but how do you trust what's moving through you on an unconscious level and let that, let that surface into uh, consciousness in a way that surprises you in some way. I was very influenced by Antero Ali who's an experimental theater director 
uh, writer, among other things. I was involved in his experimental physical theater group paratheatrical research for a couple of decades. And uh, he has this wonderful saying, the only art that comes from the conscious mind is dead art. And so I'm always looking for how do we how do we get beyond just our conscious training and let something authentic emerge, but it also has to emerge within structure. Because when I write a story or a comic, there's structure, there's a form that I have to work within to make it coherent to other people. And so, you know, there's this, always this balance of the flow of creativity that alters structures and we're creatively playing with structures and messing with structures and querying structures, but some structure and form has to be there or it just turns into sort of this, this mush, this unconscious suit and it becomes incoherent to anyone else. And so in order to, there's this continual creative engagement with culture where the culture has particular forms and we have to work within them just enough to make our work accessible and coherent and yet also queer those forms by bringing something authentic to them. And I love, you know, as a, as a writer of fiction and comics, I know I'm, I know I'm doing it when I have a well-structured story, but my characters surprise me when the characters, when it's like, okay, I like, the character is telling me what they're doing here and it's not necessarily what I could have come up with consciously. And so I'm looking for those, those moments of like something authentic coming up from my unconscious relationship with a character that's not, you know, something that's not just contrived for effect, but that actually has the most powerful emotional effect often is when there's something that emerges that's completely unplanned. And uh, just one last question before you go. Um, here on Intersection on the Spectrum, we want to tell different different stories. What what stories for for you would be important? Do you feel like that you would want to hear? I'm really interested in the stories of anyone who is querying their identities and playing creatively with it. And we have uh, so much of the discourse on identity and on intersectionality and such, I think gets overly essentialist these days. Like everyone has, you know, these fixed identity categories. You are this race and this means this about you. And you are this gender and that means this about you. And there's these broad generalizations and people locked into categories. And I think that becomes oppressive and a tool by which we oppress others and ourselves. The discourse on race in the U.S., for instance, essentializes it in a way where I think that we forget that the whole concept of race was developed by racists for oppressive purposes. And I don't know, you know, I'm very into that wonderful saying by Audre Lorde, um, uh, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, you know, where we might, to some extent, identity politics are really valuable to get a sense of solidarity among, within, between groups and such, and recognize, okay, this is, this is how I'm a member of this particular group of people, and 
we face this particular sort of systemic uh, oppression or this we have this particular sort of privilege we need to take into account in some way. These are useful ideas, but if we get trapped in them, we just duplicate these oppressive structures and categorizations that were originally developed for oppressive purposes. And to some extent, there's a limit to how liberatory they can be. And so I'm very interested in people who've decided to queer their identities really actively and to not allow themselves to be stuck in essentialist categories or to be stuck seeing the world through an essentialist lens of identity politics. How do we get beyond that and start recognizing and encouraging fluidity of identity and fluidity of self and culture in everyone? Difficult work. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes it is. And controversial work because, you know, obviously it's like at this point, you know, we have this very polarized discourse, uh, very polarized right-left discourse within the dominant culture. And people on both sides of that are very attached to identity politics and to essentializing identity and, you know, what I would say becoming becoming uh, extremely identified with identity. And I'm I'm, the, the question for me then is always how can we bring more fluidity to the process that it seems that people are gravitating towards more and more deeper and deeper entrenching in rigid categories for themselves and for others and how they see the world. And uh, I want to see things get more fluid and more, more queer and, you know, just have people have more awareness of identity and a culture and such as processes that we can work with creatively instead of as territories that we need to defend. Well, well, Dr. Walker, I know we went on a lot longer than we said we would, but it was a great, great conversation and really appreciate you being so giving of your time. Thanks for has, joining us. Thank you. It has been a great pleasure talking with you both today. Thank you.